comes from the book of Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. And if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of God. <clears throat> Mark chapter 8, and starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. Please have oh, It's good to uh, see everyone here today. Um, it's been actually really cold. Um, <clears throat> Last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 3, and what we tried to do is we, we tried to look at what I thought was a, was a basic fundamental definition of what, what sin is, what was so bad about what happened in Genesis 3. And most of us think that when we think about sin and, or, and what happened in Genesis 3, well, the, obvious, the answer is obvious, right? The bad thing was God said, don't eat of this fruit, and uh, Adam and Eve didn't listen to him, and they disobeyed that command. And so they said, okay, I'm just going to like not care about what you think, I'm going to do what I want, right? And that's oftentimes what we think about when we think about sin. Uh, it's about doing bad things, doing something that maybe God doesn't want you to do. But what I wanted to make clear was that it isn't simply an action. Sin is not simply just disobeying a rule or breaking a commandment, but it's actually even much more fundamental, more basic. Think about this. Um, let's say one day you know, hang out with your friends and uh, you know, one of your friends come up to you and say, hey, you know what, this is what I heard this person said about you. Can you believe that? I think that's what I heard. He said this about you, and it's not good, right? And so you're thinking about that, and you like, think, what the heck? Like, why would he say that? Why, what, 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 he doesn't know me. Why would he say that about me? You know, how could he say such a thing? You know what? I'm, I don't even want to talk to him. You know, I don't even want to look at him anymore. I'm not even going to bother. You know, I, and, and so we have conflict based upon what you heard someone else said about you. And, you know, this happens all the time. But you ever think about this? If you really thought that that was happening, if you really thought that what this person said, why he said it, how he said it, that you had a clear understanding of what it is, even though you've never spoken to this person, wouldn't it make sense to ask? Did you really mean that? 
But rather than doing this, what it is, what we do is this. We don't only just gather information. It's never just information that we hear. We interpret that information from our perspective. We, we, we guess the meaning behind the words and why they said it. We assume the intent of the words in that interpretation. We assume the motivation. Well, this is why he said it or she said it. This is why he did it. We even assume his purpose. You see, the part of sin is that not just breaking the, you know, the rules or doing the bad things, but it's making myself the center of all interpretation of everything I hear, see, and do. It's putting myself in the center of my world and then filtering everything through what I want to see so that I decide, so that I pass judgment, so that I make the decisions. And you ever wonder, and I think about this, you know, if the serpent was tempting Eve, hey, did God really say this? No, he didn't really say this. If I was Eve, I would think maybe I should ask God and be clear. Maybe I should ask him, but she doesn't. She makes herself the center of her world. She's the reference point for all things, where before it was God, now it's her. And I think fundamentally speaking, from the beginning of time, that's all of us. That is the essence, I think, of sin. And we call it selfishness. Selfishness, right? Why is there war? Why is there terrorism? Why is there litigation? Why is there divorce? And the Bible says the reason for the lack of peace in our world is because there is an inherent self-centeredness, selfishness, and pride of every human being. It tears things apart. It ends things in strife. It results in conflict. Because it's the selfishness which creates the strife and the enmity which creates the conflict. And that's what I think Genesis 3 was basically saying. And this isn't anything new. I mean, you should know this. We all say this all the time. Everyone's selfish. Everyone kinds of, kind of thinks for themselves. And, and the answer then for the Christian should be, well, if, if sin means being selfish, then the answer is I need to be more selfless. I need, to, I need to think more about others, and I need to stop thinking more about me. And that, that's the answer, right? That's what we're looking for, right? It's not. Listen to this little dialogue here, okay? I'm, I'm going to play out this uh, dialogue between two guys. Let's call this guy Joe Cynical, all right? And he's talking to this guy, Tommy Hopeful, all right? Joe Cynical, Tommy Hopeful. Just bear with me, all right? And just play it out. Because the issue is a lot more deeper than you think. I'm going to ask you to think about this. So Joe Cynical meets up with his friend Tommy, Tommy Hopeful, and he says this. He says, hey, Tommy, uh, I was thinking about it, and I think that everyone that ever was and is is selfish. And that everything we do, everything people do, is motivated by selfishness. People are going to do what they're going to do. They're going to do what they want to do, and nothing's going to change that. Nothing's going to change that. And that's how it is. That's how the world functions, Tommy. Tommy hopeful responds, but Joe, I'm not sure about that. Really? Is everyone, everyone really selfish? Because if that's the case, then how does this world continue to survive? I mean, if everybody was doing what they wanted to do, wouldn't there be conflict? Wouldn't there be strife? Wouldn't things fall apart? How do we get things done in the world? Joe says, ah, Tommy, I'm glad you asked. I'll give you an example of how things work in the world. You remember in July of 1991, the gas company Arco came out with a new gasoline. 
which was supposed to be far more pollution-free than it has ever been. It was right on the front page of the New York Times. Tom, you listen to this. They came out on the front page of the New York Times, and they said, hey, we're working for everyone. We're working for the environment. We want peace with the environmentalists, and so we're going to produce this cleaner gas. But then later, they interviewed a spokesperson from Arco, and he admitted freely they could have been making this gas years ago. But they had, he says, they just had no incentive. And you know what the incentive was for them? California had passed certain laws about emission control, and now they were going to be penalized for a terrific amount of, of money if they didn't produce cleaner gas. And so guess what they did? They put it in the papers. Hey, now we're environmental friendly. Why? Because now we have an incentive. The country gets cleaner gas because that's what they want, and we get to save a lot of money. Now we can work together because by working together, we both get what we want. Listen to me, Tommy. They didn't do this because they were being selfless. We're all selfish. And the way the world works now is this. It's just this. My selfishness is now coordinated with your selfishness. So that together, when we work together, we both get what we want. And everyone's happy. And it's called an enlightened self-interest. Tommy, don't be so naive. Remember that campaign when they were trying to prevent drunk drivers, right? Don't drink and drive. And they had this motto. You know what the motto was when they started this campaign? The motto was this. Don't drink and drive. The life you save may be your own. Tommy, let me ask you a question. If people are so selfless, why didn't the advertisement company, why didn't they put up a different slogan and say, don't drink and drive because the life you save may be somebody else's? And the answer, I think, Tommy, is this, because it's just not a powerful enough argument. The life you save may be someone else. Oh, okay, that's important. No, the life you save may be your own. Ooh. Ah, that, that's important. Appeal to, for the sake of others, yeah, maybe. Appeal to the self, much more effective. That's how selfishness works in our world. That's how the world is. That's how people are, Tommy, right? Don't be so naive. It's not biblical. It's biological. Look out for number one, survival of the fittest. I need to look out for me, and it's just that sometimes in order to look out for me, I need to look out for my family, and I need to look out for my town, and I need to look out for my state, and I need to look out for my country, because if those things are doing well, then I will do well. It's all self-motivated, Tommy. When you ask people, why should you do this? You know what they're asking? What's in it for me? That's how people are. Tommy Hopeful thinks, you know, I see what you're thinking. I see what you're saying, Joe, but I've got a problem with that. Joe, Joe Cynical. It just can't be like that. It just can't be only enlightened selfishness, right? And that's how the world works and flourishes. Because if that's the case, Tommy or, or Joe, it, it'd be temporary. 
You could work for your interest with someone else and their own interest, and both of you could be happy. But once you get what you want, somewhere down the line, your interests are going to change. And it's going to, again, back to conflict with the other person. And in the end, you're just going to go back to, uh, you know, pushing someone aside, cheating someone, stabbing someone in the back, or just walk away. Yeah, I mean, I think things might work out. There might be a little peace for a while. But it's temporary. It, it won't last. We're, we're back to square one, Joe. And Joe, let me ask you, everybody's selfish? Come on, everybody's selfish? It can't be everybody. I mean, there are people today, Tommy, uh, uh, Joe, there are people today that seem to have lived selfless lives, Joe. There are people, if you ask them, why should you do this, they're not saying, oh, what's in it for me? They're saying, because it's the right thing to do. Because it's the good thing to do, Joe. It's the selfless thing to do. There are people like that, Joe. Why does that guy put himself in danger to save a person from a burning building, right? What about that guy that ran across a, a street of speeding cars to risk his life for a dog? What about those people that devote their whole lives to third world countries and help provide things like water, food, and health care? How about people like Mother Teresa who devoted her whole life to orphan children? Surely, Joe, they can't be sinfully selfish they must have been thinking of others. Joe Cynical comes back and he says, Ah, Tommy, but wait. Are those examples truly selfless? No self-interest at all? Because, you know, you could say you did the right thing, Tommy, and you feel good. I did the right thing. Pat myself on the back. It was tough, but I, I did it. And now I'm a person of integrity. Isn't that a self-motivation? Or put it negatively, why did the guy say the person from a burning building? Because he says, if I didn't do anything, I would feel bad. I couldn't live with myself. Aren't those self-centered motivations? Aren't those a benefit for doing a good deed, from doing what looks like selfless acts? Thomas says to Joe, Joe, no, 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 wait a minute. I got the ultimate example here. It's different, all right? What about Jesus? <laughs> Jesus Christ, God, who became like us, didn't do anything wrong, and he gives his life. He endures the crucifixion, right, for people who rejected him, who hated him, who betrayed him. That has got to be the ultimate example of a truly unmotivated, selfless act. Wouldn't you agree, Joe? Joe whips out his phone. He goes to the Wikipedia, looks up a Bible passage. He says, I know something about your religion. You know what it says in Ezekiel 36? Your Bible? Ezekiel 36. This is what it says. God says, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, to vindicate my holiness, I will take you from the nations. I will, I will you know, sprinkle clean water. I will give you a new heart. I will, I will put my spirit in you. I will give you the land that I promised you. And I will deliver you from all your sin. See, Tommy? God, your God, saved people. Not because first he was selfless and loved people more than himself. He saved people, it says, 
for his glory, his name, his reputation. Tommy, if that's not selfish, if that's not self-motivated, I don't know what is. Your God is no different from the rest of us. Tommy Hopeful thinks about it and says, oh, it's been a while since I read the Bible. Hold on, let me look it up here. I didn't think about this. But wait, Joe. God could say that, that he's for his glory first. He could say that. Why? Because, well, he's God, Tom, Joe. Don't you see that? He's God and we're not. And Joe Cynical ends the conversation by saying this. What hypocrisy. What hypocrisy. Tommy, your God, don't be selfish, and yet he is for his own interest first. What hypocrisy. I don't think I'd be interested in your God. End quote. One of my classes in college, uh, there was a class that we talked about this very issue. You think this conversation just doesn't, you know, made it up, but we actually had that for a few weeks. Is there such a thing as a selfless act? It's what we call altruism. Is there anything in this world that's truly selfless, that's truly altruistic? And here, let me just read to you what uh, psychology today says about this. Quote, no surprise then that many psychologists and philosophers argue that there can be no such thing as true altruism. And that so-called empathy and altruism are mere tools of selfishness and self-preservation. On this account, the acts that people call altruistic are performed because they lead to pleasant feelings of pride and satisfaction, the expectation of honor and reciprocation, or the greater likelihood of a place in heaven. And even if none of the above, then at least because they alleviate unpleasant feelings such as guilt or shame of not having done anything. The bottom line, I think, is this. There can be no such thing as an altruistic act that does not involve some element of self-interest. No such thing, for example, as an altruistic act that does not lead to some degree, no matter how small, of pride, of validation, or of satisfaction. End quote. That was the result of that class. That was the result of many people. And here's my opinion. I agree. I agree. We automatically assume, well, yeah, if the core of sin is selfishness, then to be a good Christian, you should be selfless, which means don't think about me, think about others, right? Uh, to be selfless, no regard for the self, but for the other. I agree. I don't know if that's possible. So what are we going to do about it? I agree with the premise, but I disagree with the definitions. Look at the Bible. Let me just read you a few verses. Hebrews 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God, if you want to draw near to God, Hebrews says, you got to believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. If you come to God, you've got to believe he's going to give you something. That's what he says. Matthew chapter 22, uh, Jesus says this himself. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor how? As yourself. Yourself. In our passage today, 
Jesus says in verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Do you see these verses? Jesus appeals to your self-interest. Jesus encourages, even in our passage, to truly save your life. Have interest in your life and not lose your life or forfeit your soul. The Bible appeals to your self-interest, not to your selflessness. And I think the, the, the solution here is this, okay, if you're following me, is that there is a difference between plain, sinful selfishness and having a self-interest. If you look up the definition of selfish, it reads something like this. Selfish is this, seeking or concentrating on one's own advantage, pleasure, or well-being without regard for others or at the expense of others. That's what they say is selfish. But I think there is a self-centeredness, a self-interest that the Bible gives us that is not at the cost or, or of others, but very opposite. For the sake of or because of others. Because of joy. And because of love. Here, let me try to give you an example. Let's say, you know, Valentine's Day is around the corner. And um, I don't know, I, I want to surprise my wife with uh, a couple of dozen roses. And um, she comes home from work and I give her these roses. And I say, hey, surprise, honey, happy Valentine's Day. And she says, you know what, Francis, you never buy me roses. What, why, what made you do it? And I respond, because it's the right thing to do. It's the selfless thing to do. You don't have to get me anything, but I want to get you roses because a good husband does this, and that's what I'm doing. How do you think that's going to come over? How do you, how do you think that's going to feel? Of course not. What, what, do they, what does my wife want to hear? What do people want to hear? Honey, I gave you these roses because I wanted to show you how much I love you, how much I enjoy you, and how much it makes me happy to make you happy. There's a self-interest for the sake of someone else. And it's not selfish. It's love. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he says this, quote, A man's love for a woman is not selfish because he wants to marry her, nor his love for poetry selfish because he wants to read it, nor his love for exercise less and be disinterested because he wants to run and leap and walk. No, he says this, Lewis says, love by its very nature, seeks to enjoy its object. The Westminster, Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question goes like this. What is the chief ends of man? And you know what the answer is, right? To glorify God, how? And enjoy him forever. Enjoy him forever. It's in my interest to enjoy God forever. Think, think of, just stop a moment and just think about this, right? Joe Cynical may have a point, but if I said to you, glorify me, enjoy me, of course that sounds egotistical. Of course I'm, I sound like a megalomaniac. But if God is really God, this is what it means. If there is a God and God is really God, it means that there that, that can be nothing greater than him. And you know what that means? That there can also be 
nothing more life-giving, more satisfying, more enjoyable than him. That is the very definition of who God is. So if God tells me, glorify him by enjoying him forever, he's not being selfish. He's being loving. Because that's what it means to glorify him, to make our lives look as if we are enjoying him who is the source of all joy. So that when others around me see that, they wonder and think, wow, they must really love their God. They must really love being Christians. And I want to ask you today, even if you're selfish or selfless motivated or self-interested, can you say that if you're a Christian? Do you enjoy being Christian? Do people see that? Look, let me, sports. I love it. I love that team. I love watching. I love playing. And, you know, people see that. Of course they see that. It's obvious you like it. Friends, I, I, I enjoy my friends. I love it. I want to hang out with them all the time. Movies, bars, and drinks, food. I love to eat, you know, and I'm going to do it all the time, and you can see it. Traveling, I want to go everywhere because I love it. Relationships, I want one so bad. I enjoy my relationships now. I love it. And then I got to go to church, and this is what we do. I got to go to church. I got to go worship, and you come on church on Sunday, and you go, Like the song we sang, well, the song we sing today, to you alone belongs the highest praise. To you alone belongs the highest praise. And then you go and maybe, you know, you have a non-Christian friend and you try to share your faith with them. Hey, come visit our church. Come visit our church. And they see and they see you. To the highest praise, to the God. Look, look, think about this. Why would I deny myself of everything I could do on a Sunday? Why would I give all that up for this? Why in the world would I deny myself of all those wonderful, beautiful, enjoyable things out there in the world for this? In Mark chapter 8, I think he's basically saying this. You would if you believed that Jesus was more wonderful, more beautiful, and God more enjoyable than anything else. It would be in your self-interest. Everyone may struggle with selfishness. All of us are probably self-interest, but not every self-interest is sinful. Follow me here, okay? Here's the difference between sinful selfishness and just good old-fashioned self-interest. This is what our Bible passage says today. Self-denial is in my self-interest. Mark 8, Jesus tells the disciples, hey, you want to follow me? Take up the cross and deny yourself. And he's not telling me, hey, you've got to be selfless. No, this is what he's saying. The denial here is not like Buddhism or Hinduism or any kind of asceticism. It's not saying, you know, be selfless for the sake of being selfless as a virtue. Here's the difference. When Jesus tells them to deny themselves, 
It's a denial motivated by a self-interest. I'm going to deny this. I'm going to say no to this in order that I can have this. I mean, if I can't have both, and I've got to choose one, and I love that, and I love this, I'm going to deny myself this, give up what I love and enjoy in order to gain that which I believe is more lovable, more enjoyable for myself. And they said, Jesus, you're it. This is why I think the disciples followed him. These guys, they heard Jesus, you want to follow me? You got to get ready to die, and you got to deny yourself. I mean, if you heard that as a non-Christian, that doesn't sound very inviting, does it? I don't think they followed him because they were being so religious. I don't think they were trying to take the high road in life. I don't think they were trying to be hardcore disciples. I just think they were trying to be reasonable. They had a reason. I like this better than that. And if it means in order to get that, I've got to give up this. If it means that I need to give up this in order to get Jesus, take it. Take it. Again, Lewis says the same thing. The principle, quote, the principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find yourself. Lose yourself and you'll save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Lewis says, when we lose ourselves in wonder, awe, and the praise of God, the more joyful we can become, but also the less self-conscious. When we are more focused on God, the object of our joy and love, we are naturally less focused on ourselves. Friends, listen. If God is who he says he is, if Jesus really is who he says he is, then it's not in our self-interest to be selfish. But self-denial is in our self-interest. To be able to say no to this in order to say yes to him because nothing can compete and i think this is what a biblical self-interest is about yes maybe philosophically speaking there is no such thing as an altruistic act as if we are totally disinterested from whatever we do that's good but rather we are all in a sense self-interested but the problem here is this that our self-interest is never found in the one who says he is the only one to give us what we need. Our problem as Christians, if this is true, if biblical true self-interest is true, our problem is this. Our problem is not that everyone pursues their own interests. Our problem is we just don't pursue our self-interest strongly enough we don't pursue our self-interest strongly enough if that's what it is if this is what the bible says god is we don't pursue our interest strongly enough c.s lewis he knew what he was talking about he says look our lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling around about with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. End quote. It's important to remember this. God's interest is in our self-interest. And the more we pursue God for our interest, the more we will deny ourselves of others. The more we pursue our true self-interest in him, the more we will glorify God. Selfishness is choosing our lives. But if we pursue this kind of self-interest, we choose Jesus Christ. The disciples had a choice to make. You know, you want this or that. That's what Jesus says. He doesn't give them any other option. Deny yourself and follow me. It's this or that. And I think here in our passage, Jesus to them was worth it. It was a no-brainer. It wasn't a sacrifice to give up, as Lewis said, mud pies in a slum for a holiday at the sea. That's what they believed about him. To deny, to give up, to let go of what they had, what they wanted in order to gain him. And I think if we're not understanding this, I think if you're not seeing this, I, th I think if you're missing this point, then you've either forgotten who God is or you don't have a clear picture of what he is. Two things I think we need to wrestle with. Is God really that worthy? I mean, every Sunday we sing songs about that, but do you believe that he himself is worthy? That's the first thing we think about. But the second thing is practical. To follow him, is it really worth it? Really? I mean, is it really worth it? Think about this. So I joined the AARP. Uh, it's a very elite club that, that only a few of us here can actually join. Um, and uh, during that time, I, what I did is, uh, I, I, I'm an introvert, okay? So I, I, um, I'm, I'm not the, hey, let's go party kind of guy. I, I need to reflect. And so that's what I did. And this is what happened. As I started to reflect, like, what did I do in the past 50 years? And what's going to happen the next 50? Uh, it, it got kind of depressing. I, I find myself regretting a lot of things. You know, and, and what's going to happen in the next few years or next? I don't know. It got hazy. And, and, and you know, thinking my life, even as a pastor, or even, I, I'll be honest, I had to ask the question. Is this worth it? Everything that I talk about, everything that I've learned, everything that I'm doing, and let's say I got maybe another, I don't know how many years left, but in, in, in this is it. Was it worth it? I could have stayed home on Sunday and watched TV. 
right? I could have, I like, traveled, you know, and done other, other things and, and not worry about other people's issues. I, I mean, like, I could have focused more on other things, maybe family, and I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I'm, I, don't, is it, is it, I actually asked myself, is it worth it? And I think we need to ask that question. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a surgeon in London in the 20s, and uh, he had reputation and distinction. I don't know if you know who this guy is. But the trouble was that after he became a Christian, he discovered that um, he was a really good speaker, a tremendous preacher, but he was a doctor. Not many doctors, professional doctors, are really good preachers. So Lloyd-Jones, he, he just had this feeling that he's got to do this. He's got to preach. He's got he's to speak. He did it. So he left his job as a surgeon, and he went into ministry. And at that time in, in history, he took a 90% cut in his salary. His salary as a minister at that time was one-tenth of what he was making as a surgeon. And some years later, the story goes that a reporter came to him, and, and the reporter asked uh, Dr. Jones, he says, Dr. Jones, many people were intrigued when you made this choice because it seems like you gave up so much. There were so many things in your life you had to give up, and I'm sure there has been a great deal of enjoyment and satisfaction in what you're doing, but I, I want to ask you and find out, on balance, after reflecting and weighing everything up, was it worth it? And this is what Lloyd-Jones said. Lloyd Jones barked at him in Welsh because, you know, he was Welsh. And this is what he said. I gave up nothing. I received everything. My dear man, you don't even understand the basic nature of Christianity. Christianity is not just one way among many that can help you be happy. It's not just a way that we have to say, will this help me really reach my goals in life? Christianity is a total reorientation. I gave up nothing. I received everything. And I'll bet you even today, right now, Christian or not, there are still some of you sitting there saying, but is this worth it? Will it be worth it? Because I might have to give up so much. If I do become a Christian, I might have to give up a lot of stuff. I don't know. Is it worth it? And I want to be clear. I'm not saying drop everything and be a pastor or a missionary because you'd probably be a bad one anyway, Right? Uh, but I'm saying this, that maybe the job you love, the, the, the school you, you want to get into, the, the relationship you're craving, the sports you love, the relationships and the friendships you have, maybe the way we put those in perspective is those things aren't meant to be the ends of your life. They're a means to an end. They're reasons to why now you say, thank God I have this. Praise God that you provided." There are reasons to glorify God, to remind you that you don't make up your life. You don't make up your identity. God does. So that even when those joys start to fade, and they will, or even never happen, nothing has changed with you and God. He is still your life. He is still your Father in heaven. He is still your joy. Yes, there are going to be some things in once in a while that you're going to have to give up for him. Of course you do, right? Uh, you can't compete. But if you see what the disciples see in Mark 8, good things in themselves, many of them, 
but compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, it's crap. That's what they believe. That's what Paul believed. I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as crap, rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. And if you're sitting there weighing the options still, is this really worth it? Is it really worth it? You won't really know until you actually give yourself to him. And I hope, whether you're watching at home or whether you're here in the pews, that whatever reason you're here, that you know that my reason is this. We need servants in the church. But I hope you don't come just to serve. We want community and, and, and fellowship. But I hope that's not the only, I hope that's not even the ultimate reason. You come because it's a sense of duty, uh, responsibility, and, and you grew up this way in the church. So that's why you feel like you come. I hope that's not the only reason. But I hope you come because you see what the disciples saw and what everyone else in history saw about who Jesus says he is. The Jesus who came to serve so that you could serve out of joy. The Jesus who gave his life for you to bring you into this fellowship and create a community of love. I hope you come and see this Jesus, not, not fellowship or service or community, this Jesus who, as Hebrews says, not out of duty or responsibility, but out of real desire and joy, you come to see this Jesus who denied himself, took up that cross, so that you and I might live for him and enjoy him forever. Enjoy him. Do we see that ourselves? And so I pray that you come and do some self-reflection. Uh, not just go through the motions, but remind ourselves once again uh, why and who it is we're here for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, your patience, your mercy. Um, Lord, only you know what, what's really in our hearts and our minds. Only you know, Lord, um, our true intent and motivation. And it's, it's impossible for humans to, to try and, and guess what that is in other people. And, uh, but we try and do that all the time, and it brings us into trouble. Um, we are by nature not just selfish, but also self-interested, motivated by our own desire, our own wants, and our own loves. And we're thankful, Lord, uh, to know that maybe some of that is not just sin, but some of that is human. And maybe some of that you've created in us so that when we worship you, when we serve you, when we commune with you, it is because we want and we love and we desire you. 
That's the nature of our relationship. It's the way you've made us. And yet we are so prone to finding those things in everything else but you. And so, Lord, I pray that you forgive us for making you less than you say you really are. And I pray that you increase our faith to believe what you say is true and to experience in a deeper way what that means in our lives in this world. In Christ's name we pray.